0: All right, so we're in 2 Samuel 21, and for those of you either tuning in or coming back, I know it took a few weeks, but we have been just marching through the books of the Bible, doing something of a, I guess, a Bible survey and just seeing what does the Bible have to say uh, in each of these books, and we've gotten up to 2 Samuel, and we kind of parked on it for a while. Uh, This will be our third week, and what If the Lord makes my mouth really run over time, uh, it should be our final week. But we're studying the life of David and we kind of parked on David because David pictures the life of a believer. And the things that happen in David's life is really indicative of the things that happen and should happen in our life. And uh, we really saw, and we focused on this last week a lot, how his life really turns on the sin with Bathsheba, right? His life really turns on sin. And that's how your life is going to rise or fall. Your life is going to rise or fall and hinge on your sin, right? Your obedience or lack thereof is really going to be the the fulcrum on your success or failure as a believer. And we've given this outline before. Chapters 1 to 10 is before Uriah. Those are his triumphs. Nothing bad is said about David before that incident with Uriah. He's really just got a glowing testimony in the Word of God. And then we've got the center of the book is against Uriah. That's David's transgression. And then those remaining chapters after Uriah is nothing but trouble. It's all the bad that happens to David. And what we really want to zero in on are those last few chapters, 21 to 24, which is really David's testimony, David's final remarks, David's final moments. Because if David's life is picturing the life of a believer, then the testimony David leaves and the last thing in David's account should be some of the last things we should be considering and looking forward to in our lives, So let's jump into chapter 21 and the first big takeaway from chapter 21, if you're taking notes or just listening to me, is that the Lord keeps his word. That's something that we get left with at the end of the account of David and something as you and I go through the trials of life, we got to remember that God never breaks a promise. I do. That's why I don't make my kids promises. I try not to, because I want to end up breaking it. But God never breaks a promise. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 21. It says, then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. So way back in Joshua chapter 9, the children of Israel made this league with these foreigners called the Gibeonites. They were deceived, but they made a covenant with them. They made an oath with them, rather. And they made this league with them that they would protect them. But Saul breaks that oath. Saul breaks that word and violates that league. And now God is judging Israel because of the the league and the oath that Saul has broken. God has sent a famine upon Israel because Saul had violated an oath with the Gibeonites. And so the Gibeonites... They want vengeance. They want vengeance on the house of Saul. And I'm not going to read all the verses, but if you read 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, the Gibeonites want seven sons of Saul to be slain as recompense to appease their wrath for this league that Saul had broken with their people. And I want you to show you what David does in verse number 7. Saul does not keep his word. David does. You want to see the contrast. Verse number 7 but the king so the king david is going to turn over these sons to let you know that wrath be appeased but you know who he spares he spares mephibosheth but the king spared mephibosheth the son of jonathan the son of Saul watch this because of the oh, the lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. They were also supposed to get turned over to the Gibeonites, but David specifically spares Mephibosheth because David is going to honor the covenant that he made with Jonathan. What a contrast to Saul. Saul's a punk. Saul breaks promises. Saul breaks covenants. Saul breaks the league. David keeps his word, and David spares Mephibosheth a type of you, the sinner, because of a deal he made with Jonathan, a type of Jesus Christ. In fact, go to Philemon. If you could find that in the New Testament, congratulations. But find Philemon. It's one little chapter right after the book of Titus. Philemon. Philemon, verse number 17. There's no chapter because there's only one chapter. Now let me check the temperature in the room, spiritually speaking. Um, Let me just step all over your pride. We deserve to die for our transgressions, like those sons of Saul, right? Our sin, the wages of sin is death, right? We deserve to die. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, right? So we deserve to die. But what did God the Father do? The judgment of God was upon us, but God the Father honors a promise that He made with His Son, Jesus Christ, Because he made this deal, so to speak, with his son Jesus Christ, that all the people that come to Jesus Christ for salvation and forgiveness, including Uncle Dan, including Mal, anybody that comes to Jesus Christ, he said, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So if you're coming to the Father through the Son, you've got a pretty secure deal there. And that's because the father honors the arrangement with his son. And that's why. Not because you're such a sterling individual. It's because he honors the agreement with his son. And in Philemon, there's a beautiful picture of this. Because in Philemon, we've got three characters. We've got Onesimus, who's a runaway slave that gets saved in jail when he bumps into a preacher named Paul. We've got Paul, and we've got Philemon. You say, who do they represent? Onesimus represents you you're a sinner, you're bound, you're prison-worthy, you're Onesimus. You bump into somebody named Paul. Paul pictures Jesus Christ. And you know who Paul's writing this letter to? Philemon, who pictures the father. And here's the picture in verse number 17. I want you to see what Paul says to Philemon, because it pictures what Jesus Christ has got worked out with the father. You want to see they're talking about Onesimus being spared. And in Philemon 17, Paul writing to Philemon, I want you to hear the voice of your Savior speaking to God the Father, if thou count me therefore a partner, right? Because the Father and Son are in lockstep together. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. Let that sinner in the way you'd let me in. Right? Verse 18. Now this is a beautiful verse. If he hath wronged thee, and haven't we wronged the father? If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, and we know we owe God like our very lives, but we don't often give them to Him, put that on mine account. He says, "You charge me the sins of Patmosania. You charge me the sins of Onesimus. You charge them to me. I'm your partner. Remember the deal we made? I'll take the fall for them. Put that on my account, and receive him the same way you receive me. You know what that is? That's a league." That's a league between the Father and the Son. You know what? God will always honor that league. God will always honor that pact, that deal. God says, why does He let you in? Because of what He said to the Son, what He promised the Son, right? In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Before the world began, He promised His Son life. Now go to, um, uh, don't go anywhere. Go back to, uh, go to Psalm 117. Yeah, go to Psalm 117. So, I hope you see that picture and I hope you see the contrast. Saul is a type of the flesh. Saul does not keep his word. He violates his word. David is a type of the spirit and the spiritual man. He keeps his promises. He honors his agreements. That's what kind of person are you? What kind of person is God? Go to Psalm 117. You know what David is? What did they say about David when they anointed him king? He's a man after God's heart. So if David keeps his promises, that means God is a God that keeps his promises because David is a man after God's heart. Now look at Psalm 117, verse number 2. Psalm 117, verse number 2. I'm going to get on a kick right here. Psalm 117, verse number 2. The Bible says, For his merciful kindness is great toward us, Amen. And the truth of the Lord endureth for how long? Forever. forever. Thy word is truth, Jesus said. You've got the truth in your lap in that Bible. God said that truth would endure forever. Praise ye the Lord. Hey, how does God's truth endure in a world of liars? We've got a world of liars. Even people that handle the Bible end up sometimes being liars. Right? I was, uh, I don't mean man, I got to let that kick. Psalm 33. <laughs> let me just, Psalm 33. Psalm 33. Let's look at verse 11. Psalm 33:11. Psalm 33:11. <clears throat> Here's another one. You say, how is the truth going to endure in a world where everybody's lying to each other? I'll tell you in a second. How about Psalm 33:11? The counsel of the Lord standeth for how long? forever the thoughts of his heart to all generations how is god's counsel going to stand in a world that falls for anything man they fall for anything i mean people are just people don't have any convictions about anything as long as gas is a decent price and the line at dunkin donuts isn't too long most people are moderately happy The the boob tube could say anything. Pigs are flying. You know, this is happening. The moon is made of cheese. They'll be like, okay, as long as the Duncan is flowing and the gas isn't too expensive, they're chill. They're good to go. They're happy go lucky. But How is God's counsel going to stand? Go to Psalm chapter 12. How is God's thoughts going to continue? How is God's truth going to endure? How does God's counsel stand in a world that's full of lies and fools and people that handle the word of God deceitfully? Psalm 12, 6 and 7, if you don't have it memorized, highlighted or tattooed across your eyelids on the inside, you need to do one of those three things. Because Psalm 12, 6, and 7 is why we make such a big deal out of this Bible we hold in our hands. This is why we can pr- hold on to the fact that God's truth endures forever. This is why his counsel stands. This is why his thoughts are still preserved for this generation today, even though he spoke them thousands of years ago. Psalm 12:6, the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Watch this. This is David talking to God. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them. What the words from this generation forever. See, you know why God's truth endures forever. Why God's counsel stands. Why we still have His thoughts. Because the Lord always keeps His word. He always keeps his word. He will never let his promises fall to the ground. Now, that, that means in your personal life, you could trust his promises. I think Spurgeon said you could take his promises all the way to the bank and just cash them as far as the Bible will let you cash them. But also, his promises as a whole, this book we hold in our hands, The fact that we believe that we hold the word of God in our hands is not because of scribes or scholars or anybody like that. We know that God preserved us his words and could keep the promise that heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away because of the integrity of God to keep his promise and the character of God to keep his promise. That's that's why we get excited about this book. Hey, if the Lord can't keep a book, what basis do you have for believing he's going to keep you? If he couldn't keep words, you think he's going to keep your soul? He keeps the planets in orbit, but you don't think he could keep a word Amen. in its proper place? Amen. Strange thoughts we have about God, isn't it? Don't forget God. Now, to illustrate this, go, to, go back to 2 Samuel 21. <clears throat> hey, let me ask you all. You all learned this story. Who killed Goliath? Amen. Who killed Goliath? Amen. Are you sure? You sure it was David? Yes. I don't know. I think I got some ignoramuses in here. Psalm tw- uh, 2, Samuel 21, 19. Let's read it, okay? 2 Samuel 21, 19. <clears throat> I got this scholar telling me that this guy by the name of Elhanan killed, killed Goliath. I don't know. So, 2 Samuel twenty-one nineteen. Look what it says there. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elhanan, the son of J... That guy... J. that guy, Origami, J. Origami, J. Origim, <laughs> a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So the King James Bible says that Elhanan killed who? Goliath. Goliath's brother. Now I got over here. I just happened to have this on my bookshelf. Uh, a new international version. This is one of the leading Bibles in, on the market, right? And I was looking through it. I said, What does it have to say? 2 so, uh, Samuel 21.9. You can come up. I'm going to say this for the recording so you could hear, but I'd have somebody read it. 2 so, Samuel 21.9. Actually, Mario, come up here. Come up here and read it for me. 2 right? Samuel 21.9. Read it big and loud. Just the way I don't look like I'm faking it or lying because they all think I'm a liar. Read 2119 right there. Read it nice and in loud. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhanan, the son of, of that guy, of that guy, <laughs> the Bethlehemite killed Goliath the Gittite. Stop. So this says Elhanan killed Goliath. You know why? There's a little footnote. A little footnote. The italics were not in the Hebrew originals. You see your Bible right there? You see your Bible? You see King James Bible? You see the brother of is in italics? Because to complete the sense of the translation, the King James translators had to add words sometimes to complete the sense. Right? You do that all the times when you translate. But the New International Version translators, they didn't want to put those in there, so now you've got a problem. you got a Bible that says, David killed Goliath and Elhanan killed Goliath. And it's one of the leading sellers on the market today. Isn't that strange? Isn't that wild? But if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 20, go to First Chronicles chapter 20, the Bible clears it up. 1 Chronicles chapter 20. 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse number 5. Thank you, Mario. For keeping me honest. 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. you can hold your place in 2 Samuel. 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. The Bible says, And there was war again with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, slew Lami, the brother of Goliath. No italics. It's in the originals that Elhanan killed the brother of Goliath. So when your King James translators put the italics in 2 Samuel, they knew exactly what they were doing. They were guided by the Lord. They knew exactly what they're doing. David killed Goliath. The King James Bible has no conflict, but if you're looking closely at some other versions, you might be a little confuzzled. Amen? And God always keeps his word. So let's go. Let's look at 2 Samuel 22. Here's the thought for 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22 is about the coming rapture. We see, and again, this is the end of David's life. How come David didn't write about this in his younger life? He writes about this at the end, because at the end of your time and God dealing with you, there's a rapture that's going to happen. Now, doctrinally, it's going to point to a post-tribulation rapture for the Jew, but spiritually, we could take a lot out of it for ourselves. But let's look at it doctrinally right now. Let's just put our great tribulation glasses on, and let's look at David. These are my glasses. See that at home? Do you see it at home? All right. What was that show? What was that show on channel 13? The Mirror. Right. And I see Billy and Joey and, you know, Romper Room. I used to like that show. Right. And I see this one. Now, some of you think I just ate shrooms at home, but I didn't. I didn't have anything to eat. I'm good. But anyway, we're going to think about this now as David a picture of a Jew in the Great Tribulation, and we're going to see so many parallels and how God comes to deliver them before the Battle of Armageddon. Ready? Look at verse 5. David picks it up, and he says, When the waves of death compassed me, he surrounded The floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. So here's a picture of David surrounded and distressed, just like Israel's going to be in the Great Tribulation. Surrounded by waves, that's peoples. All these ungodly people that are going to want to push them into the sea. So David has got nowhere to look but up. And in verse number 7, David calls upon the Lord like Israel is going to turn to the God in her distress. See verse 7? In my distress, that's an important word in your Bible, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God, and he did hear my voice out of his temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. Now we could take so much from that, but let's just put the context of this scene is second advent not the church age it's second advent when jesus christ comes back to crush the antichrist let me show you some of the imagery that is so reminiscent of the second advent if you connect it with your bible look at verse number eight what's happening in verse eight the earth shook and trembled the foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth the earth and heaven are shaking that's not happening now but that's going to happen in the future see Haggai chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 12 you find out about the heavens and the earth shaking around the time of the second advent look at verse number 9 there went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured coals were kindled by it fire is actually coming out of his mouth to devour his enemies you think Indiana Jones and the temple of doom was freaky The Bible says that when he comes back, he's going to melt the tongues in his enemies' mouths and melt the eyeballs in their eye sockets. Those people, he's going to almost like vaporize him. It's not just a sword coming out of his mouth. It's fire coming out of his mouth. See Jeremiah 23. Is not my word like as a fire? Right? It's coming out. That's the sword. It's fire coming out and devouring his enemies. That's what's happening right there. Look at verse number 11. And he wrote upon a cherub. See, what's he doing riding a cherub? Have you not read Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10, where he comes back with the cherubs? Ah, oh, you have a lot of reading to do, right? Uh, look at verse number 13. Through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 that he comes, the brightness of his coming. When he comes is a brightness, right? You're not going to miss him when he comes. When he comes from the rapture, It's in secret. When He comes at the Advent, every eye is going to see Him. You're not going to miss Him in this time. Verse 14, The Lord thundered from heaven... And the Most High uttered His voice. There's His voice sounding like thunder. See John 12 about that. And then verse number 15, And He sent out arrows. He's shooting arrows, right? And scattered them, lightning, and discomfited them. The Lord is shooting down His enemies like somebody shooting down enemies with an arrow. Psalms seven, eleven, and 12 says, The Lord hath bent His bow. He hath made His arrow ready upon the string. And He's angry at the wicked. He's going to shoot them down and scatter them. This is second advent, man. So what happens? In all this happened, God's coming back with this rage and this wrath and he's going to devour his enemies. Armageddon is coming. And what happens right there in 17? David, who's our Jew in the tribulation, is taken. He says, he, see 17? He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out. Of many waters, those waters are peoples, right? Verse 18, he delivered from me from my strong enemy and from them that hated me, hello Israel, not going to be gaining in popularity in the years to come for they were too strong for me. And that Jew is hiding for those years of tribulation but right before the Lord is going to come back and whack everything, he somehow delivers his elect. I don't know, all the details are hard to see, but I do see this. Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, is the first mention of the word took. And it's about Enoch. And it says, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He plucked him out of earth and brought him up to heaven. So it says right there, David is surrounded by his enemies, and somebody from above took me. Where did he take them? That's, that's a little more studying to find that out. But go to Matthew 24. Let me just show you one cross-reference. And again, the details and the timing of this, some of it is hard to nail down, but it's, something is there, man. There's definitely some kind of rapture at the end of that tribulation for those people to get taken out of the way. Matthew 24 is all about the tribulation. right? You want to know what Matthew 24 is about? The tribulation. The great tribulation. And at the end of it, look what he says in Matthew 24, 29. Jesus Christ speaking, so the words might be in red in your Bible. (laughs) Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. There's the shaking. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Watch it. And he shall send, right? He sent from above, we read in Second Samuel. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So, before the battle of Armageddon, God gathers his elect nation and those, that remnant out of the way. Some of it's foggy, I'll admit, some of it's hard to nail down, but there's definitely something happening there at the end of that tribulation. So, why does David say this at the end of his life? Because it comes at the end of God's dealings with us. The rapture comes at the end, right? Doctrinally. Again, doctrinally, there is a rapture at the end of the tribulation for the faithful, for the ones that are enduring. Spiritually, how about us? There is a rapture at the end of the church age. Not at the beginning. The rapture comes at the end. So doctrinally, okay, this is, the Bible is meant to be for doctrine. This is Bible study. We sink our teeth in here. David pictures the faithful Jew in the Great Tribulation. You see it all throughout the book of Psalms. He's running from Saul. He's running from this guy. He's surrounded by these people. He's calling out to God for help. That's a picture of a Jew in the Great Tribulation running from the Antichrist, running from enemies, and looking to God, Lord, how long? How long are we going to wait? Because the kingdom has got to come for us, God. Spiritually, David pictures the saved believer who's caught up at the end of the church. Chapter 23. Chapter 23. This one's going to bite. All right? Let's go back to 2 Samuel 23. This one bothered me, so I'm only sure it's going to bother you. In a good way. Because chapter 23 is about David's mighty men. Okay, David's mighty men. You want a little heading in your Bible? David's mighty men. Now, I just want to point out to you verse 1 and 2. Now, these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, watch this now. This is a great verse to highlight about inspiration. Right here, David is claiming inspiration. Watch this. The Spirit, capital S, of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. There is David very clearly, without mistake, claiming that what he's saying, God put those words in his mouth. That's inspiration, right? The Bible says, All scripture is given by inspiration, right? God breathing into something. Inspiration as opposed to expiration, right? The scripture is given by inspiration. This is God's breath. God breathed these words into existence, right? But in 2 Peter 1, it says, holy men of God spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So God breathed these words in, but they didn't float down on a cloud. They came across the hearts and mouths of people like you. Holy men of God like David spake. He said, the Lord spake by me. So a great text for inspiration. But that's not the big focus here. The big focus of this chapter is David's mighty men. Verse number eight. See verse eight. These be the names of the mighty men Whom David had. So watch this now, folks. After the rapture in verse 22, there is a roll call in chapter 23. Do you see that? Because after the church is called out, the church then gives an account. That's how this thing goes down, right? There is a rapture for the church and then a review of our works at the judgment seat of Christ. So it's very interesting that there's a rapture alluded to in chapter 22. And then in chapter 23, David is recounting what this guy did, what that guy did, what this person did, what that person did, and honoring them for it. Because that's what's going to happen to you folks. Go to Romans chapter 14. Let me just give you a cross-reference here. And this... As I've said before, and I'll say again, uh, he said it at least 10 years ago. Our founding pastor, Mel Sabaka, said nobody talks about the judgment seat of Christ anywhere. I remember Pastor Mel saying it. Nobody teaches on the judgment seat of Christ. It is a great doctrine in the New Testament. It's not a little pet peeve doctrine. It's not, But there is an accounting that's going to happen for what you did with this salvation that God gave you. After the rapture. And in Romans chapter 14, verse number 10, the Lord says, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not the white throne to see if you get into heaven or not, right? This is what kind of reward you get. Once you enter into God's kingdom and God's future plans. So verse 11 says, for it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So there's a nice little proof that Jesus Christ is God, because that's a reference to Isaiah 45, where God is saying they're all going to bow to me. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Who is he writing to? He's not writing to lost people there. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. He's writing to the ones that are called to be saints. Right? You and I are going to give an account of ourselves to God. That's not foreign. right? Everybody who works any kind of job in any capacity... Get some kind of annual review or quarterly review or some kind of review. Even if you're just doing a job privately, you're a contractor. Somebody walks in and they take a look at what you did, whether they like it or not. Right? It's everywhere. Right? Nurses, I'm sure, teachers get observed. Right? There's always these things built into our world where if you're working at a job, they want to see what have you done with the responsibility, the tools, the resources, the training that we've that we've endowed to you. Well, hey. God says, I gave you salvation, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. Okay, I gave you 20, 30, 40, 10, 15, 5. How many of the years you were saved? You know what? What did you do with it? Because I got a reward I want to give you. So how much of it can I give you? What did you do with it? And that's what's happening here. And when the role is called up yonder, yonder, will you be remembered as a mighty man? We're back to 2 Samuel. Let's let's look at some of these mighty men. Man, these guys are... There's 37 of them, but I just want to touch on the first three. They're kind of tiered. There's like the first three and then another three and then another group. So it's like, I want to look at the top of the top here. We could look at many others, but I want to look at the top of the top. And there's a lot to why they're in these little groupings, but I don't want to go into that right now. But I want you just to see some things about these first three that might provoke you to want to be a mighty man for your David. You want to see the first one in verse 8? <clears> 2 <throat> Samuel 23, <clears throat> These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. Here's the first one, ready? The Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains. The same was Andino, I mean Adino, right? (laughs) Every time I see that, I think of Andino. The same was Adino, the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. You know what God points out about the first mighty man in his list? That he was willing to fight. That he was ready to lift up his spear and take on whoever he had to take on for his captain, for his David, and for his nation. So you say, I want to be a mighty man. I want to get the reward God has for me. I want the Lord to look at me and say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So, first thing off the bat, are you willing to lift up your spear? Are you ready to fight the good fight of faith? So many Christians, I'm not saying you got to stand on the street to fight this fight. You could fight your flesh, you could fight all kinds, you could fight the sin in your life. There's all kinds of stuff you could fight. But a lot of Christians are just chilling. They're just like, wake me when it's over. Just, you know, when the alarm goes off, I'll know it's time to go home, but I'm just chilling down here. I'm having too good of a time. But, you know what? God says, "All right, enjoy. I'll wake you when it's over, but I'm looking for some people that are ready to pick up their spear and fight for me." Right, whether it's to get sin out of your life, try to witness to a family member, be consistent with the things of God, it's a fight. It ain't going to come easy. You're not going to become a better Christian by osmosis, by just sitting there and like naturally just growing. You'd be saved 10 years and still be a spiritual baby if you never exercised your faith to grow it all. Right? You can't just stand in a garage and say, I'm a car. And you can't just sit in church and say, oh, I'm growing as a Christian. No, you got to take some of these things and like, wrestle with them and work them out and apply them to your life. You know what that is? That's a struggle. Because everything about your flesh wants to eat a ding-dong and lay on the couch and forget about everything but sleep. I'm preaching to myself now, I think. Right? But sometimes it takes a little effort to pray takes a little effort to read your Bible. takes a little effort to get to church. takes a little prayer and concern for somebody else beside yourself to give that person a track and a Christmas card. Right? It's a fight. It's a struggle. The first man in David's mighty men was ready to lift up his spear against whatever army came against him. That's the heart that God's looking for in us. Here's the next guy. The next guy is verse number 9. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. I don't know about that. The Ahoyte. One of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle and the men of Israel were gone away. He arose and smote the Philistines, watch this, until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. And the Lord brought a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to spoil. You know what I see in the next guy? I see a warrior who's just got that sword so close, his hand is like almost attached to it, like a, like a carpenter with his hammer. Just that, that, that sword, he's holding on to it so tight that it's like he's tired, but he's not letting go of his sword. You know what that tells me? Is your hand cleaving to your sword? Are you holding on to the book and the promises of the book? You say, I want to be in David's mighty men. Well, then that Bible's got to be close to you, man. Clave means, right, the Bible says, abhor that which is evil, cleave that which is good, mean stick to it, bring it in close, right, uh, hold on to it really close, God even uses that language in a husband and wife becoming one, right, for this cause shall a man cleave, right, he's going to leave and cleave, right, he's going to become one, this book has got to become like in your thoughts, man, not stuck on a shelf. It's got to start filling your thoughts. You got to start thinking what the Bible says. It's got to be that close. That guy was a mighty man because he claved to the sword. And you may get tired, but don't put your sword down. Don't give up on this Bible. You'll never be one of David's mighty men if you do. Number three, here's the third guy. Watch this. 11. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite, Why couldn't they be like Fred and Stacy and Phil, right? And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. What do I see in the third guy? Somebody willing to stand his ground for God. Will you stand your ground for the son of David, even when it doesn't look like it's important? I mean... For some lentils? I got a can of Progresso in the pantry, God. I mean, we, you got I got to sit here and fight for lentils? But this was something that was David's. This was something that belonged to David, and he was going to stand his ground, and he was going to defend it against the enemy. That could be, those lentils could be your kids. Those lentils could be your church. Those lentils could be your relationships. Those lentils are things that the world looks lentils like, Little lentils, like these little things that you put in a bowl and you eat, like you're going to fight over that? Yeah, I'm going to fight over things that the world thinks are not important, but God is looking for people who are willing to stand their ground for God, even over the small things. Even when it doesn't look important, man, this guy was standing his ground, even when it didn't look important, even when... Come on, let them have the lentils. I mean, let's go get a steak. Let them have the lentils. He said, no, this is David's. I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to defend it for the glory of God. Come on, let them have your kids. Let them have your time. Let them have your energy. Let them have your youth. Let them have it. Just come on, what's the big deal? No, this is God's. I'm going to stand my ground. John Wooden was a great basketball coach. Coach UCLA, Coach Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's one of the greatest basketball coaches of all time. And John Wooden, that, I mean, I think even the NCAA trophy when you win the big dance in basketball is the, the Wooden Award, right? The Wooden Trophy, if I'm, if I'm correct. You know what? John Wooden said, the true test of a man's character is what he does when no one is watching. This guy didn't get a lot of fanfare. He I mean, who's staring at the lentil field? I mean, it's just lentils. I mean, it's not... I'm thinking like it was Trey Bakziti, we might have a we might fight about that. But it's lentils, right? Bland, boring lentils. Some of you might make wonderful lentils, fantastic. But for most of us it's lentils. I can't keep saying it over and over again. It's just blah. But he's going to stand his ground when no one's watching. DL Moody said DL Moody said, "Character Character is what a man is in the dark." Character is what a man is in the dark. We got a lot of Christians with no character. No integrity, no backbone, no values, no standards. God's looking for somebody that will stand their ground, won't dip the colors and stand their ground. Now I want to show you what these three guys did in verse number. Here's the here's the cherry on top. Here's what these three guys did in verse number thirteen. And three of the thirty chief went down, and came to David in the harvest time unto the cave of Adullam, and the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim, and David was then in hold. And the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And the three mighty men, these three guys we just mentioned, break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. You say, I want to be in that number. Well, then you've got to be willing to give your life to just please your David. These men were willing to give. And I'm not saying it has to be martyrdom. But these men were willing to exert themselves, break through the enemy line, scoop out a canteen of water, bust back through the enemy line, and could you see the looks on their face when they walked up to David? David, David, we got your water from the well. The well you wanted? I'm sure he was overwhelmed. He was so touched and blessed. He's like, this is. I can't just consume this and drink this. This is your lives you gave. You gave your lives for me? You know what those guys are? Top three in David's mighty men. You say, I want to be in that number. you got to be willing to fight. you got to be willing to hold on to that book. you got to be willing to stand your ground. And you've got to have to have a heart like these men that says, you know what, Lord? I want to do something to just bless you, to just please you and refresh you. You know what God says? I can reward that. I can reward that. And amazing, amazing stuff. Now keep reading. Look at verse 39. Look at the last verse of this chapter. Uriah the Hittite, 30 and 7 in all. Only 37 mighty men are mentioned here by name. But when you read a little earlier, like in 1 Samuel 23, the Bible says David had 600 men. He had 600 men, but only 37 made the cut as mighty men. Now, there's a lot of people saved out there But a much smaller number are going to get remembered as the mighty men, are going to get honored like these men were honored. Take a guy like Joab. You know Joab, that fighter for David? Joab did a lot of stuff, man, a lot of killing, a lot of pillaging, a lot of warring, a lot of, he did a lot of stuff for David. But you know what he did it? He did it with the wrong heart. He did it with the wrong spirit. He had a bad spirit. He had a bad heart. You know what? He's not in the list. And some of these guys were probably servants of Joab because Joab was the captain for David for a while. Some of these guys probably served under Joab, but Joab doesn't get in the list. Why? Wrong spirit. You see, we are as Americans, we look at quantity. Look how much this guy does. Look how much that guy does. God is not looking at quantity. He's looking at quality. He's not looking at the stuff you do. He's looking at the spirit with which you do it. Joab did so much. He must have been up there like, I'm sure David's going to put me in the list. And David said, no, you're a bloody man. You're a violent man. You got a bad heart, Joab. You didn't make the cut. But see verse 39? Uriah makes the cut. This is the man that he had killed for his sin. But Uriah, I don't know anything Uriah did on the battlefield. I don't know how many exploits he fought. I don't know how many guys he killed. I don't know any. Obviously, Uriah wasn't that great of a soldier because he was put at the front where valiant men were and he didn't belong up there in the hot part of the battle. So, Uriah might not have been the most talented, the most adept with the sword, the most affluent in battle, the most, I should say, adept in battle. But you know what? He had character he had integrity, he had virtue, he had just a servant's heart and David puts him in his list of mighty men and the Holy Spirit memorializes him there forever. That's encouraging to me. You don't have to be the best. You don't have to do the most. You just got to have that hard attitude that you just want to do things to refresh your Savior. Because the reward at the judgment seat of Christ is based on what sort of works you did. Not how much you did. Right. It's not the what, it's the why. And we could all do why. We could all fix our why. Some of you will never go to the mission field. So what? Right. You, so you could have the same reward as, as Hudson Taylor and, and, and John Patton. Why not? You, just, you have a heart that wants to refresh your master. You may be one of David's men, but will you be counted as one of his mighty men? It all depends on the spirit with which you serve him. And chapter 24 is our last chapter. And then we'll circle the wagons and call it a night. 24. 24 is David's foolishness. Oh, he makes a little misstep here in 24. 24, 24-1. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. So I want you to see the pictures again. Rapture in chapter 22. 22 a review of people in chapter 23, and then the devil moving in the king's heart and the devil rising and doing something in chapter 24. It's a great picture of what's going to happen. There's going to be a rapture. We're up in heaven getting reviewed, and the devil is rising to power and moving on earth. That's what's going on here. It's a picture of the devil rising after the rapture. And it's interesting. If you cross-reference this with 1 Chronicles 21, this says... The Lord moved David. And 1 Chronicles says, Satan provoked David to number Israel. So who did it? Who influenced David? Who made David want to number all of his soldiers and all of his stuff? Well, it's both. Right? There's a lesson there. It's both. Because like he did in the book of Job, the Lord is going to give the devil slack on his leash in the Great Tribulation. The Lord's going to let the devil loose on his leash and the devil's going to do things, but the Lord allowed it. So on the one hand, the Lord moved David, the Lord's behind this, but on the other hand, Satan is provoking it. Why? Because God is letting the devil off on his leash a little bit to kind of do some stuff. Listen, man, in the great tribulation, the devil is going to bark, bite, and devour. But the Lord's letting him. And when you feel the heat of the enemy, never forget, God's always got him on a leash. Sometimes he just lets that thing come up to you and bark in your face a little bit to see how you react and how you respond, right? So who, who moved David to number Israel? The Lord let the devil loose on him. You say, why the devil, why the Lord let the devil loose on him? To put David's faith to the test to see what was in David's heart, to see what David was really trusting as his strength and his deliverance. And the Lord may give the devil some slack on his leash to see what you're made of and I'm made of. Doesn't mean God is dead. Doesn't mean God doesn't love you anymore. It just means he's letting the dog bark. He's getting them, you know, run right up close to you maybe. You can see the spit hitting you in the face to see who you're trusting. Where's your faith, Right? That's what he does in the tribulation. God lets the devil off the leash and two-thirds of the nation of Israel sign up to follow the Antichrist and only a little remnant decides to trust God and follow him. You know what God did? He just purified some people. There's stories from Eastern Europe when these guys would walk into churches with AK-47s and half the place would run out of the room and only a few would stand their ground and honor God and they would take their, put their guns down and say, all right, we wanted to see who the real Christians are. We're believers, too. We just wanted to see who the real Christians are, and now we can have a church service together. So sometimes the Lord's going to let that dog get real close to you and bark real loud to kind of see what you're made of and to show you what you're made of. And if you look at verse number 10, it says here in verse 10 of 2 Samuel 24, (coughs) Excuse me. And David's heart smote him. After that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done, and now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. You see, David's making, you know, making a list, checking it twice, you know, to see how many uh, warriors he's got, how much stuff he's got, and David is trusting his stuff. He's not trusting his God. And in measuring his own strength, David forgot about God, and he says at the end of verse number 10, I've done foolishly. Because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I forgot about God in all this. I thought it was my stuff that was going to deliver me. And there is a danger of being saved for a while. The temptation of being saved for a number of years is start to trust your own strength. I got this, God. You don't have to help me. I got this, right? I've been doing this for a while. I've got all these verses memorized. I've got all this church attendance I've done. But he's like, if you get away from the place that it's still, you're hanging on the mercy of God, you don't want to move from that place where you're hanging on the mercy of God. All right? Go to Job 31. we will conclude here. I just got a few little points to the end, some takeaways, and then we'll be done. Job 31. Job 31. And notice, David falls into this trap near the end of his life. Because the young Christian is usually hanging on God for everything, praying about everything, seeking God for everything, wants to know what the Bible says about everything. But the older Christian, they get stale. They get, I got this. I know. Yeah, I'm good. I don't need to open up that Bible every day. I got it under control. And that's where David was. That's a mistake. In Job 31, Job is lamenting his, his, his situation. And he says in Job 31, verse 25, Job 31, 25, he says, I'll let you get there while I take a sip of water. All right. Job 31, 25. Job says, If I rejoiced because my wealth was great and because mine hand had gotten much, if I beheld the sun when it shined or the moon walking in brightness and my heart hath been secretly enticed or my mouth hath kissed my hand, Right, I, if you, he, got, he says to God, if I thought for one second that all these blessings were because of my hand, look what you did. Look what you wrought. I washed my hands, don't worry. Like, look what you did, right? Look what you wrought. Look what you built up. Look at what you've made for yourself, Job. Look what he says in verse 19. If I rejoice, uh, verse 28, this also were an iniquity to be punished by the judge, for I should have denied the God that is above And as you grow into the Lord, don't fall into the temptation to trust your own strength. Even if you've been saved for 50 years, don't ever fall into the trap of trusting your own strength or kissing your hand because you have such a good life and things are so clean and you're walking with the Lord. It's because of some power you have, some goodness you did or some goodness or virtue that you have no it's because God had mercy on you and as you obeyed him he was able to have that grace on you and 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 do that don't trust your own ability so go to Philippians chapter 3 let me give you three quick takeaways some big ideas from the book of 2nd Samuel but let's go to Philippians in the New Testament all right first first takeaway first big idea first big takeaway From the life of David, Philippians 3.10. David was successful. David becomes king. David is, you know, greatest king of Israel, really. I mean, Solomon had a great kingdom, but David is, Jesus is still called the son of David, not the son of Solomon. Because David was really the one that was just the, he's the one that's going to sit on a throne as co-regent in the millennium. It's going to be David that comes back. But you know what you got to remember in your successes as a Christian, here's the big takeaway. If you can get this, it'll help you, I think. In your successes as a Christian, be careful you don't lose your balance. I want to show you a balancing act right here. Philippians 3:10. Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, right? Those two things are awesome. That I may know him, salvation, knowing God, that's amazing. And the power of his resurrection, the power of a transformed life, that this resurrected Savior can give me victory. You see those first two? Those two are all about you. Those two are things that benefit you. Those two are things that help you. Man, salvation and victory, they're awesome. That's what David had. David was sitting on the throne. David was king. Great. But you can't lose your balance. Because in the same sentence he says, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. You can't forget the cross-bearing. You can't forget the consecration. When you lose that balance, you know what you end up? You end up like David, sitting on your throne, not going out to battle anymore, and checking out the lady showering on your rooftop. And a lot of Christians love that they're saved and you should love the victory and the power that God can give you through the power of His resurrection but you can't forget the fact that God is looking for people to also take up their cross and follow Him and consecrate their lives for Him right? You got to have that balance. David lost that balance for a little while and fell into some awful sin. And a lot of Christians want to stop with, hey God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for your power. But if you stop at salvation and God's power and forget about the cross bearing, the consecration, the self-denial, the spiritual warfare, the struggle to put down the flesh and take up the cross and follow Jesus Christ, you're going to lose your balance and make a mistake. And that's what, Dave, that's what David did. And that's a great verse that illustrates the balance. Salvation, victory, cross-bearing, consecration. Those, those things together balance your Christian life out. David, uh, Paul would say, I've got all these revelations, and i got a thorn in the flesh from Satan to buffet me. All right, there's a balance there. All right, next big takeaway. Go to Psalm 51. All right, Psalm 51. Second big takeaway. Second big idea from the book of Second Samuel. It's been a great study for me. I hope you got something out of it. Uh, really so much about our life as believers. Try not to make this just a dry survey class. Trying to interject a lot of lessons for us. Psalm 51.4. Here's the second takeaway. When you refuse to make your sin right with God, you only make things worse. When you refuse to make your sin right with God, you only make things worse. I mean, David tried three different plans to hide his sin. And he didn't prosper. He that you know, if you cover your, what does the Bible say? If you hide your sin, you cover your sin, you're not going to prosper. But if you confess and forsake it, you'll get mercy. And so David, in the consummate act of not hiding his sin anymore, puts his repentance in the Bible. And in Psalm 51 is David's great prayer of repentance. If you've got the little heading, it says, When Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba, after David is finally confronted by the word of God and repents, he writes this psalm, and in verse 4 he says, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Why does he put that in there? Why does he say that? that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. David put that in the Bible, so when people looked at David's life and saw all the trouble that came into David's life, they would know it's because David sinned. Not because God was sour on him, but because David had sinned and he was reaping what he sowed. And if David had just, the minute he made a mistake, made things right with God, oh man, how much easier would have been? Uriah would have lived a lot longer if David didn't have to try to cover his sin. Maybe some of the problems would have been avoided if David didn't try to cover his sin. But when you try to cover your sin and refuse to make it right, you just keep digging that hole deeper, digging that hole deeper, Tangling that web more, you know, insidiously. Just make it right. Just make it right. Just get it right with God and move on and stop digging a hole for yourself to try to cover your sin. Last one. Go back to 2 Samuel 24. Here's the last big takeaway. And I'll close on this thought with these verses right here. 2 Samuel 24. And this is a good, I think, encouraging way to end. Because obviously David, in this section, all right, the first section, nothing bad. The last section, seems like everything's bad. David's getting hammered. Kids are dying. Kids are fighting. Kingdom's getting usurped. He's making mistakes. But you know what the last takeaway is that I learned from the life of David? It doesn't matter how you start. It matters how you finish. And David makes a mistake here. But I want you to see verse 17. Right? Twenty four seventeen. And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel. Now God sends a pestilence. He starts punishing the children of Israel for David's transgression. Because a lot of times a leader's mistakes will have effect on the people under him. Hello, Dad. All right. And it says in verse 17, And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. You know what David gets gets back to being at the end? He gets back to being a shepherd again. That's where God found him as a shepherd. And at the end, he gets back to being a shepherd again. He says, no, 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 God, take it out on me. He's putting the sheep ahead of himself again. David's didn't matter how he started and all the mistakes, but here he's finishing with the right heart attitude. He's finishing with the heart of a shepherd again. You know what he does to make it right? He pays the price, verse 24. He goes to that threshing floor of of Ornan, and it says there in 24, he goes to buy it, and it says, And the king said unto Aruna, Nay, um but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David gets back to being a shepherd and David pays the price so that he can worship God again in that spot. And you know what? He said, no, no, no. I'm not going to take it for free. I'm going to pay this. Because real devotion is always going to cost you something. Real worship is... Is always going to have a price tag attached to it. And then the last verse of this book. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Watch this. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. David offers unto the Lord and God smiles again. God is pleased again. And it didn't matter how he started didn't matter how many mistakes he made along the way. It only mattered how he finished. That's the most important thing. And brethren, listen. Don't answer out loud too loud. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to get chastened like David. The question is, will you make sure you finish strong for God? Let's bow our heads we'll have a word of prayer. Let's pray.